In our world of ever-increasing isolationism, we experience an increasing false sense of independence. And we have technology and services that are designed to make us less dependent on traditional means of information and products, yet make us more dependent on different things. Let me ask you, when was the last time you memorized a phone number? If you have a cell phone with you and it's anything like mine, you simply enter it once, associate it with a contact, and then forget about it. I am less dependent on my memory and more dependent on my smartphone than I was four years ago. And I cannot say that I am the better for it. Regardless of what I believe, I am dependent upon or independent of, I remain completely and utterly dependent upon God. Nothing ever changes this truth. I may make millions of dollars and not want for anything physical. Nonetheless, I will always be in need of air and for my body to continue to fight off disease and for my heart to keep pumping blood, etc. Do I have any conscious control over these functions? No. If God wants my heart to stop or my diaphragm to forget how to create a vacuum so that my lungs inflate or for my white blood cells to simply stop fighting the always present agents of disease, there is absolutely nothing I can do to prevent my death. I am wholly dependent upon God for my physical life. And so are you and every person on this planet, whether they acknowledge God or not. We know that a great amount of our dealings in our physical lives have meaning for us in our spiritual lives as well. And what do we learn from our complete dependence on God for our physical existence? It is simply this, inasmuch as we have absolutely no control over the inner essential workings of our own bodies, the same is true of our spiritual lives as well. Apart from God, I am dead spiritually. I live spiritually as well as physically because God wills it so. I am as wholly dependent upon God for the well-being of my soul as I am for the well-being of my body. My entire life, my entire existence, my entire reason for being is held firmly in the hands of the God who created all of this world in which I move and operate. And our wicked world has created and peddled the falsehood of personal independence. And sadly, we as the body of Christ have bought into and imbibed this delusional lie. Instead of acknowledging the body's dependence on Jesus Christ as our head, we believe that we can do just fine without him. Beyond this, we believe that we have some sort of personal spiritual life without the Spirit. We can read our Bibles. We can pray. We can contribute intellectually in theological discussions. We have memorized passages of Scripture and can recall them and apply them to real situations. We can even relate the account of the gospel to unrepentant sinners. And to others, it looks as if there's signs of spiritual life. Yet one of the most frightening passages of Scripture ought to snap us out of our most comfortable delusion. Matthew 7, 21-23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never prophesied or cast out demons or done other miraculous or mighty works in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have done far lesser things. The people referenced in Matthew 7 would easily pass as spiritual giants today. People who we would never doubt their relationship with Christ because of what they were able to do in his name. Yet, they are completely and irrevocably lost at the end of all things. Jesus dismisses them regardless of what their actions seem to signify. And the reason given is that he never knew them. How does Jesus know his people? And how do we know Jesus? The answer is that we have communion with Christ via the Holy Spirit. It is he who inhabits our hearts. It is he who is our teacher. It is he who groans before the throne of God on our behalf. It is he who quickens and makes alive that which was dead. He is the breath of God. Without him, we are helpless and we are hopeless. And without him, there is no relationship with God other than that of judge and executioner to guilty lawbreaker. To our shame, we have not honored him nor what he has done or continues to do so. We believe that we are self-sufficient in our spiritual walk, maybe giving lip service to his presence. But brethren, as sure as I stand before you today, Without his presence and his enabling and his strength and his work, we meet here in vain. Worship without the Spirit is hollow and devoid of power and effect. Singing hymns without the Holy Spirit is ritualistic at best and entertainment at worst. Giving tithes and offerings without the joy that the Spirit supplies makes giving a hardship and causes the giver to be greedy, possessive, and resentful. Preaching without the Spirit is powerless to change anyone's heart and is no encouragement to the believers among us. Listening to the message has no effect and therefore no benefit in the lives of those in which the Spirit is not at work. Prayer becomes a charade of pompous oratory fiction that reaches only the ears of those assembled under this ceiling without the empowerment of the Spirit. Even the reading of the Word of God is of no spiritual use to us without the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Without Him, reading the Word of God is strictly a mental exercise with no ability to feed our souls. It is like a starving man being able only to savor the smells of nourishing food, but never being able to chew, swallow, or digested. It is safe to say that the only worship that God honors and is glorified by is the worship that is done through the Spirit. All else is vain. All else is self-serving delusion. All else is sin. Think of what we have already done this morning. How much of what we have done has been habit or ritual? How much of our worship this morning has been 
Spirit-led. How in tune are you with the Holy Spirit this morning? And we are certainly assembled this morning under the pretense to worship God, but is God present to be worshipped? And if so, is he pleased by what we are doing? Brethren, this is the crux of the message today, that God only honors God. I want us to spend some time this morning focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to have a better understanding of who he is, what his purpose is, and just how important he is to us as God's people. For some of us, maybe we have never given much thought to the third member of the Trinity. And so with that in mind, let's start with the question of, who is the Holy Spirit? Firstly, and obviously, he is God. He has the same essence as God the Father and God the Son. He is as holy, righteous, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient as either of the two other members of the Trinity. He was present at creation, as is referenced by the second verse of the entire Bible. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We know then that all three members of the Godhead were active in bringing forth the work of creation. Of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that he would come as a helper. Some translations use the word comforter. John 16, 7 through 15 reads, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, in this passage, we also see the role that the Spirit takes. Like Christ, he is willingly subservient to the Father. In addition, he seeks to glorify the Son, as we found in verse 14. Notice also that he speaks only what he hears. In other words, he speaks only what the Father reveals. And don't let this detail escape your attention. The Spirit is necessary to teach and to guide us about Christ. Only God can explain God. How can we learn any other way? The Spirit is also our deposit for salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, 22 and 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Spirit is the continuation of Emmanuel, God with us. The Spirit is not external to us, but rather he resides in our hearts. Words fail to express the awesome event of God living within our hearts. In Israel's time, God dwelled in the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. And just who had access to God? The high priest only. 
And he could only answer once a year and never without blood. How intimate of a relationship was that between God and his people? Well, it was unheard of before God did so. But also it's far less intimate than we have today. God is now within us. God now makes his dwelling inside of his people. He is always with us, always teaching us, and always guiding us. And my, how we have taken him for granted. How could we ever grow so accustomed to being so close with God as to forget how majestic and powerful he is, or how wonderful being close to God is for any creature? The next thing I want us to look at is the translation of the word spirit. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word spirit, when used either in relationship to the Holy Spirit or merely human spirit, is the word breath. Throughout Scripture, the word breath is often associated with life itself. Consider when God made Adam. Listen carefully to Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, how immediate is your need of air? How long can you survive without it? God made us dependent on breathing to live. There are creatures out there that don't need to breathe air to survive, but contrary to the evolutionists, mankind has always needed air to live. Do you think it coincidence then that the Holy Spirit is connected so deeply with life? Job 33 verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Or also Romans 8, as we read this morning, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here's something for you to consider. Do you think that God designed your body to operate autonomously? Or is it constantly dependent on him for sustainability? Did he merely grant you life and your body does all that it does automatically until it simply wears out? How intimately is God involved with life? He is the author of life, of course. The answer is that we live now in this very moment because it pleases God that we have life. We have a heartbeat at this moment, not because a portion of our brain sends the signal to the heart for it to contract and relax, but because God wills the blood to flow through our veins. Romans 8.11 alludes to the mortal body having life through the Spirit. If our physical bodies are so dependent on Him, how much more the life He provided to us when he looked upon us wallowing in our blood and said to us, Live. The Holy Spirit, brethren, is life. He provides life to every aspect of all that is alive. Apart from him, there is only death. I want us also now to look at the operation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It is important to note that the working of the Holy Spirit was a great deal different in the way which men were used to accomplish his will. 
Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is described as rushing, filling, or coming upon people temporarily to accomplish a task, and then he departs. Here are some examples. Exodus 35, verses 30 through 33. Then Moses said to the people, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. What about Numbers 24, verse 2? And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And we know what happens next. Instead of cursing Israel, he blesses them. And in Judges 15, verses 14 through 15, When he, that is Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with, with it he struck one thousand men. And in 1 Samuel 10, 10 through 11, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and this is Saul we're talking about, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? In all of these accounts, the Spirit enables people to accomplish a set task, and once that task is completed, he departs for a time. And Balaam is not counted as a righteous man by any means. Samson, although listed in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews, has these divine spurts of anger and vengeance against the Philistines, but then pursues all sorts of wickedness thereafter. But probably the most disturbing account is the one of God's Spirit departing from King Saul. And we just read how the Spirit enabled Saul to prophesy, but listen now to 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And we read this and inwardly we shudder. It wasn't bad enough that God's spirit had departed from Saul, but rather a harmful spirit was given to him instead. Now Saul had been increasingly disobedient to God as king to the point that God said in 1 Samuel 15 verse 35 that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And he had made plans to replace him. And this point was not lost on David, Saul's successor, as he pleads with God after his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Graciously, God stayed with David and granted him repentance. Saul, on the other hand, didn't seek God's forgiveness, nor did he prize the relationship he had with God's Spirit so as to be alarmed at his departure from him. Now, with all that being said, the operation of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is greatly different than what we have looked at so far. First of all, there is a coming of the Holy Spirit, much like the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his coming is foretold by none other than Christ himself. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever 
Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Instantly we see a difference in the way in which the Holy Spirit will come. Verse 16 says that he, the Spirit, will be with us forever. Now he did not come right away. In fact, Jesus had to be tried, crucified, raised from the dead, and ascend into heaven. And the Spirit waited a bit longer to come upon the apostles. Acts 2, the first four verses says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I've heard before people bemoan the rather lowly birth of the Lord Jesus Christ as being rather unnoticed by people around at the time. But at the coming of the Holy Spirit, many people become aware of something great happening. Reading on in Acts 2, verses 5 and 6. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. We know what happens next. Peter, newly indwelled by the Holy Spirit, addresses the multitude of people, and as a result, 3,000 people repent and come to Christ. What an amazing entrance, wouldn't you say? What I think is very remarkable here is the symbolism of the tongues of fire. And we are told elsewhere in Scripture that we are not to worry what we will say when called upon to defend the faith, that the Spirit will give us the words to say in that moment. Now, did anything less happen here when Peter was preaching? Does anything less happen when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed? Language is used for communication and expressing ideas to one another. Here, the Spirit literally speaks through His people to other people. A most amazing thing when you think about it. Consider also the waiting for the Spirit to come. All the world was waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, to come to earth. And the apostles waited again, as instructed by Christ, for the Spirit. They did not rest on the teaching they received by Christ and somehow thought that they were equipped to continue His ministry. They waited, as directed, until the Spirit, in His good pleasure and timing, came to them. And how often do we wait for the Spirit? Are we so determined to do things that we lunge forward without Him? And I wonder, how do those endeavors pan out for us? The coming of the Holy Spirit and His subsequent work brought about tremendous, miraculous events. Consider the way in which people were healed. Acts 5, 12 through 16. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And what about Philip in Acts 8? 
Verse 39 and 40 reads, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself as at, at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now think about that for just a moment. He's in one place baptizing a convert, and then he's being whisked away, and he finds himself in a faraway place. Did the Spirit do this just to make it harder on Philip to get home? A lesser man would have thought so. But Philip utilizes the opportunity to preach the gospel as he travels home. There is always purpose in the actions of God. We need to recognize this as he works in our own lives. Have you been inconvenienced due to an unforeseen circumstance? Maybe they are not as unforeseen as you think. Maybe they are predetermined by God, and he has a purpose for you in that moment. Also, during this amazing time, the New Testament was written. But concerning all of the scriptures, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3, we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And there's that idea again of breath. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what I want us to understand from this is that this very same Holy Spirit, who did all these miraculous things during the time of the early church, is the very same Holy Spirit who indwells his people Today, he has lost none of his power, vitality, or holiness. That brings us to our desperate need of the Holy Spirit. We are more dependent on him than we are willing or even able to believe. Any life we experience, be it physical or spiritual, comes from the Holy Spirit. Life is not a one-time gift followed by an autonomous response by us. It is an ongoing, sustainable gift of life, renewed by God every morning until He sees fit to take it from us. Any spiritual life we experience is tied directly to the ongoing life of God. For as long as God and I shall be, I am His and He is mine, the hymn writer states. We live because He lives. Praise God for his eternality. Furthermore, any good, any true and real good that we do is a directly a result of the Spirit's work within us. Consider the war of the flesh versus the Spirit. Galatians 5, starting at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, the Spirit is opposed to our natural selves. Take a moment and think about your daily life. How often are you satisfying your needs and your desires? How often do you consider what God desires? How is your struggle with sin going? Is there a struggle? Do you desire holiness for yourself as the Spirit desires holiness for you? Is there more divisions, dissensions, strife among us than love, peace, patience, and kindness? If so, the Spirit is not leading. Again, anything truly good is of God and God alone. Nothing we do apart from God is good. Not one thing at all. Therefore, He is necessary for any and all ministry. Evangelism and the growth of us personally as well as corporately is His work and responsibility and not ours. This does not absolve us from being obedient to the call to evangelize or to spur one another on in the faith. A person without the Spirit cannot do any spiritual work. Consider even the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 3 reads, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil." We stop to think about that for a second. No sooner had the Spirit come upon Christ and he is led away to be tempted by Satan. Imagine if this is what would happen to us. And again, the disciples waited for the Spirit before beginning their ministry. Acts 1 verse 4, And while they stayed with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. I think we often become too concerned with the mechanics of the faith without recognizing the power behind them. And when we do this, we become religious and no longer function as children of God. We read without understanding because we have not asked the author to explain it to us. We think because we are familiar with the text that it no longer holds any truth for us to glean. And by doing so, we shut ourselves off to the working of the Holy Spirit and we rely on our intellectualism. We pray without first asking for an audience, so to speak, or even preparing ourselves to meet with a holy God. And then we try to speak without a mediator. Worse yet, we become so familiar with God that we take Him and the gift of His Spirit for granted without realizing that we are coming before the great God of all. We are irreverently flippant in our requests. 
We are concerned with ourselves and our needs and our wants, all the while thinking that God is just as concerned with them. We don't realize that by doing so, we are often elevating the flesh over the spirit. A simple test for this. How much of your prayer life is centered around you and your will? How much of it is concerned with God's continued glory and how you may help to bring more glory and honor to him? We come to worship services for a variety of reasons, but none of which are the right ones. Instead of coming to meet with God's people for the express purpose of praising the only being worthy of praise, we gather as merely friendly acquaintances looking for some tidbit within that message that's new that maybe we haven't considered before. And having done our weekly duty, we bolt for the door, hoping to interact with as few people as possible. Is this how God's family is to act? Is this how people who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit act? There is no commitment to be holy outside the confines of the church building's walls. We are more faithful to our jobs, to our friends, and even our pet dog than we are to the ever-faithful one who was faithful to the point of death on a cross to save wretched sinners such as we are. We forget that the Holy Spirit is holy, and subsequently we are to be holy so that we do not grieve him. The reason we are like this, brethren, is because we do not rely on the Holy Spirit for anything we do. Oh, we're happy that he's redeemed us and we're going to heaven. But we can handle the rest of life down here until we die. And if that is what we think in the deepest recesses of our minds, then we are in a very real, dangerous position. For what reason did God give you his spirit? Was it to wait to die all the while serving yourself as you always had before? Or was it so that you would serve him and because you were incapable of doing so in and of yourself because of your wickedness, he gave you his spirit so that he could be faithful to himself? I wonder if we realize what we have in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that he blesses and inhabits and empowers whom he wills? Remember Simon the Magician? He desired to buy the Spirit so he could profit from his power. Acts 8 reads, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon thought of himself first and how he may profit from the gift of the Holy Spirit. Subsequently, he was condemned for it. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They lied to the Spirit. Acts 5, But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, 
but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all those who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. This is the New Testament church. You know, the Holy Spirit listens to all of our justifications for our sins. He is acutely aware of our lying, even to ourselves. And what sin are we trying to get past him? When was the last time that we were in great fear of God because of his holiness? Only the Spirit and his subsequent work please God. Therefore, we need to petition God for an outpouring of his Spirit. The awesome thing about him is that he is inexhaustible, inexhaustible in measure. He can fill each and every one of us and have more of himself to give. Brethren, a lack of faithfulness to our services, a deadness in the spiritual lives of our people, the lack of the desire to be holy people, the divisions that arise among us, the quarrels we have, the coldness we experience between members, the lack of conversions among those of us that don't yet know the Lord, can all be summed up by observing that the name Ichabod is slowly being written above our church's doors. The glory of the Lord has departed, and as with Saul, we have not prized, we have not cultivated, nor spent time, nor loved, nor needed the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. And what is left here after he leaves? With Saul, an evil spirit took his place. Is that where we are headed? I pray that God would forbid it. Jude 1. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We need to beg God for his spirit. We need to stop being preoccupied with ourselves and be like the spirit who is preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every morning we should rise and thank God for the opportunity, the command, and the ability through the spirit to obey him in spreading the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to reinvigorate our passion in hating sin and loving righteousness. We need to spend time with God's people who have the very same spirit within them. Do you know why there's no quarreling between people who are indwelled by the spirit? It is because the spirit loves the spirit. Any endeavor worth the energy of our doing needs the blessing of God and the empowerment of his spirit. Before we consider doing anything, we must ask ourselves, does this action honor God? Does it bring him glory? Does using the energy and capabilities he's given me for this purpose advance his kingdom? If you think God is not concerned with the details of your life, you haven't considered how much detail he placed in designing you. God is big enough for every major event, and he's also able 
to address all the minor things in our lives as well. God can be glorified in our choice of breakfast cereals. God can be glorified in our choice of socks for the day. God can be glorified in how we choose to comb our hair. But God will only be glorified if all that is done is done through the Spirit that He has given to us. And in closing, I want to challenge you, brethren, to think on your relationship with God. Are you as close to Him as you have ever been? If not, ground has been lost. No distance from God is good. If He feels distant to you, it is we, by our sin, that have moved away from Him. Repent of your sin. Turn away from it. Ask God to come live with you once more. Ask forgiveness for the grief you've caused the Spirit. Ask that you might be filled anew with the inexhaustible Holy Spirit. A Spirit-filled church begins with Spirit-filled people. Join me in praying for this. I am not praying this just for myself. I am praying this for you too. May God be gracious and patient with us, the ever-straying sheep of his fold. Let's pray. Father, we are needy people. We need your spirit more than anything else. I pray, Father, that you would be gracious to these people here, myself included, your people assembled here at Thornfield Baptist Church, that you would, in your mercy, send your spirit upon us. Empower us by him to do your will. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look deeply at the sin that still ensnares us, that grieves him. You cannot abide sin. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ came. How dare we keep on to it and hold, try to hold you close to it. I pray, Lord, that we will see it for what it is. Rebellion. I pray, Lord, that you'll grant us repentance. We know that that is a gift of your spirit. It will only come if your spirit is with us. We ask your blessing upon us, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen.